Welcome, everyone, to the Chief Executive Podcast. I'm Mark Thompson, and I know just how lonely it is to lead a company. I used to do that for many years, and I know how tough it is to grow those companies fast when there's really nobody to talk to about this stuff. Well, I'm that guy. I'm here to talk with you about the world's most successful CEOs. You're going to meet one today, and how she took some of the biggest steps to prepare for that top spot. Because for most folks, it's a really big surprise that you become CEO, but you're actually no longer entirely the boss. Not exactly, because you've got a dozen board members who ultimately rule the roost, and so many stakeholder relationships. You're not only likely to not win the job unless you put those relationships in place, but I guarantee that without those relationships, you won't keep that C-suite job. Today we talk with one of the world's leading CEOs, Deanna Mulligan, who's an expert at building those stakeholder relationships that led up to her run to become the leader of the world's largest life insurance company, Guardian, and how she earned that top role and how she did work with her board and other stakeholders to make extraordinary growth happen. Listen to Deanna the leader of one of the world's largest life insurance companies, Guardian. Thank you so much, Deanna and Panay, for being with us. We are inspired by the work that you've been doing uh, in both your companies, but also in the communities and, and all of the people that you influence around the world. And Deanna, you've just come out with this incredible book, Higher Purpose, and it was, in a sense, a way for you to pay it forward, but also a part of a transition plan after an extraordinary career leading your company for a, a decade and then adventures before that. Could you start off a little bit with Deanna, your, um, how you'd kind of summarize the trajectory of your, your work and, and perhaps then about how it leads into the decision to write this book and, and what it means to you? Well, I graduated from Stanford Business School and I'll, I'll give the brief background. I am uh, very thankful for my MBA education from Stanford, went to work for a brief time for a life insurance company in New York City. That was a detour. I wanted to stay in Silicon Valley where I had some offers, but my husband wanted to go work in banking in New York City. And in those days, there was no tech in New York City. That's how long ago it was. Uh, from there, I was there briefly. I went to McKinsey. I became a partner in the financial institutions practice. I left McKinsey during a previous startup boom and went to work for a startup that didn't live. Um, from there, went to work for AXA, the French insurance company, who had been one of my clients. From there, um, took a break, as has been documented in a Wall Street Journal article that you can find on my LinkedIn if you're interested, took a fairly long career break, then started my own consulting firm and uh, Guardian was one of my clients and was fortunate enough to go to Guardian and become president then CEO then chair over, as Mark said, a 10 year period. And Guardian is a very purpose driven company, which is what attracted me there, 160 years old this year owned by its policyholders, founded by a, well, I guess what we would say would be a civil rights lawyer today, but an attorney from Germany who had been prosecuted for his political beliefs and escaped to the US and found that uh, German immigrants and other immigrants at the time were discriminated against by life insurance companies. And he mm. formed a life insurance company as a service to make sure all these people could obtain 
life insurance. So the purpose-driven nature of the company persisted. I found it very attractive and basically tried to run the company by the values that existed when I got there, which were, we do the right thing, people count, and we hold ourselves to a very high standard. And I started every meeting with that slide and people started debating in meetings whether or not we were living up to those, our decisions were living up to those values. And occasionally they were, hmm, came my way as in Deanna, do you really think this is the right thing in terms of higher standard or people count? And so I actually rejoiced when employees took the values and started asking me tough questions because it meant that they were really baked into the company. Um, mm -hmm. I uh, knew that I couldn't stay there forever, even though I would have loved to. It was time to really turn the company over to somebody with a different skill set than mine. So I was fortunate enough that my chosen successor, Andrew Mann, McMahon, came to join the company and after two years became president, is now the CEO and is going to take the company to fabulous new heights along the way. Um, I had a wonderful CIO, COO, Dean Del Vecchio, who helped completely transform the company from a technology perspective. And our experiences in doing that were we had to retrain hundreds of people um, and not just technology people, but also actuaries, data analytics people, the people who work in our call center inspired me to write this book higher purpose, H-I-R-E purpose, how smart companies can close the skills gap, which talks about the obligation that companies have to retrain people and also the practical aspect of it in that McKinsey estimates that 375 million jobs will change before 2030 and about 75 million of those positions will go unfilled if we continue on our current trajectory because the skills won't be there. So it's not going to be possible potentially in the future for companies to just eliminate jobs and think they're going to go out and hire new people. Those people won't be there unless we all participate in training them. And it's really an effort that's going to require government, private sector, schools, colleges, universities, parents, students, employees, and companies to work together if we're going to accomplish it. So that's really the message of higher purpose. In the last few months since I've left Guardian, I've been out spreading that message with the book. So thank you to those of you who might have bought the book. It was a Wall Street Journal, it debuted as a Wall Street Journal business bestseller book and was on the list for a couple of weeks. So thank you. Well, it's been an inspiration to see how you've translated that into how all of us can pay it forward and how that's in a sense in our enlightened self-interest as employers uh, and as uh, communities to, to think about that larger set of questions. How did you internalize that at Guardian? How did you operationalize that, those sets of principles that you have in the book in the way you showed up as an organization and how you were leading it? Well, Guardian is a Fortune 250 company, but it's owned by its policyholders. It doesn't have stockholders. And so the company exists for the benefit of its policyholders. And the way we showed up every day is what is the right thing for the policyholder? And, you know, life insurance companies are funny things. When you sell a product today, you need to be there 50, 75 years from now to pay that claim if you're selling life insurance. 
So we ran the company with a very long-term and very conservative perspective, but also, you know, including employees and the community around us as stakeholders, because no company survives for 160 years with, you know, a a totally self-interested point of view. The community, the customers and the employees all have to contribute to that success. So that's the way we tried to show up every day at Guardian. I know, Pranay, this resonates for you because the vision that Deanna is talking about with this larger constituency and serving the customers is something that's at the core of what really drives your vision uh, at Fractal. Could you take a moment to talk about how you arrived uh, at that vision and and then connect with what Deanna is talking about in terms of how you show up for customers and your stakeholders? Absolutely. So uh, at Fractal, our mission is to power every decision in the enterprise using AI engineering and design. And uh, the reason for that is that we believe that if we help power every decision in the enterprise, if we help our clients make better decisions, we help them deliver better outcomes to their customers. In your case, it would be your policyholders, uh, to the employees and to the shareholders. And uh, AI engineering and design that we believe is the new way of doing things because AI helps us make sense of all the structured and unstructured data. Engineering allows us to scale and operationalize it uh, at, 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 at industrial scale. And design is really the idea that are we putting user empathy into everything that we do. And uh, I have to say that even at our scale of Fractal, which is really uh, a much smaller scale than Guardian, and uh, you know, ostensibly we are a new age company that is in the area of you know, AI engineering, et cetera, uh, we are facing some very uh, steep challenges in terms of skills and reskilling, right? We're just a 20 year old company and we are finding that the skill sets required are changing so rapidly, even within the narrow technology space, uh, that we are having to think of this whole area of skilling, reskilling, you know, quite, uh, uh, quite aggressively. And uh, I have to say that it's not as easy as one would have thought that you would say that, okay, you're a tech company, you're in this space, so it should be quite easy. So uh, I have a question for you, which is that, you know, how did you get people on board and how did you, you know, engage them? How did you motivate them to sort of, you know, uh, get on to this idea of making, uh, the, I mean, getting reskilled and getting retrained? Well, thanks for that question, Pranay. And first of all, I want to say how much I admire Fractal and what you are doing. And certainly we used a lot of AI at Guardian, a lot of uh, data analytics, and those were two areas where we really needed to get people on board um, to learn new skills. I think one of the ways that we did it is we connected everything to the mission of the company. So we need to be able to serve policyholders mm-hmm. better and faster. And just an example, during the pandemic, we were able to completely 100% work from home because we had you know, done a lot of work over five years to put mm-hmm. everything in the cloud, to give everyone mobile technology, to train them to work remotely. We were about 30% remote before the pandemic hit. So we were able to move off campus fairly quickly but we were overwhelmed with calls from our policyholders who had lots of questions and, and quite frankly, lots of fears, wanted to make sure their policies were going to be there for them if they became disabled because we sold disability insurance as well as life insurance. 
And so we needed to upgrade some of our systems on the fly. And we did install, for example, some intelligent bots in our operation centers remotely. And we had been planning to do that, but we had about a six month project plan, which we crunched down to about three weeks just to be able to assist our customer service agents in handling calls. Cause we had very strict standards for how quickly we answered calls. And in doing that, we found that about 70% of the customers right off the bat accepted these bots uh, and did not you know, opt out of the call. And we were amazed because we did it so quickly and normally we would have taken such time and we probably ended up with the same result. So we learned a lot from that about moving fast and about how flexible our people could be in learning to work with technology. It's not technology is totally going to replace them. It's that technology is going to assist them. And, you know, we're still learning, um, but that's an example during the pandemic where we learned quickly by experience, but the motivation of everyone was we cannot have our customers waiting on the phone for half an hour to talk to us when they're under Mm. stress because of this pandemic and they have claims and they need to talk to someone So everyone quickly got on the same page to say, okay, well, we had these, you know, we had these bots and we had this intelligent agent that we were going to put out there. Let's just get it out there as quickly as we can. We can't even hire people fast enough. We need to just get this done. So, you know, never underestimate the power of stress and, and, and the motivation of doing a good job for the customer. Excellent. No, thank you very much for that. I think that's a great point, and I'm, you know, uh, it's something that I'm going to take back uh, as learning for uh, ourselves, right? Which is this whole idea of connecting this to the mission of the company or the values of the company. At Fractal, our number one value is put the client first. Uh, our success is an outcome of making our client successful, and uh, we measure ourselves on net promoter score, uh, which at this point of time is 75, and something that we are very proud of and hope that, you know, we can uh, keep it there and increase it. Uh, But clearly it's a function of, you know, uh, our second value is to learn and grow. And it's a function, our ability to deliver that client success is clearly a function of, you know, being able to learn and grow uh, rapidly at the pace at which is needed. So I I, I really uh, appreciate that there's some great learning for me over there. How do you connect this to the company value and, you know, bring people along on that journey? When you think, Deanna, about this, this notion that you and Pranay are sharing around the reskilling of the populations and the huge demand for talent, how does the set of values and the willingness also to integrate this digital platform? In a sense, in, a, in 10 or 12 months, we've adapted a decade's worth of digital uh, <laughs> integration, right? It's been the biggest shove, the biggest accelerator of all time. How, how did this affect or how does this affect and what would be your advice for other leaders as they think about recruiting and finding the right people for the right seats to serve your customers? Well, I would say your existing employees can do a lot more than you think they can. I mean, a year ago, no one was a Zoom expert. Okay? And now, for the most part, everyone is. Everybody, everybody found a way to adopt, at least in our company, to working from home with basically not a lot of practice. And they did that, again, because of the motivation, two values, one, to take care of the customer, which was really important and we just talked about, and the other, to take care of employees. 
we didn't want people to have to go into the office in New York City and be exposed to the virus. And, you know, we worked from home all over the United States and in India. Ultimately, we moved everybody home in India, which had never been done before. But same motivation, take care of the customer, keep people from being exposed to the virus. And we were very successful in that. Um, we really needed to upgrade not just technology skills, but a lot of other things as well. And this is back to something I think that's close to Pranay's heart as well. We had been working on a program to turn our actuaries into data analysts. Mm. And we have a central data analytics group with about 13 PhDs. We were blessed to be able to attract to Guardian um, through a brilliant leader, Tom Olds, who's both an actuary and a data analytics person. And uh, he came up with the idea along with our chief, chief actuary, Michael Slipowitz, that what actuaries do, they, their job has been around a long time and they basically make predictions based on data and they do a lot of data sampling. In the old days, you know, they had samples. And why did they do things based on statistical samples? Because we didn't have enough computing power to use all the data. Now we can crunch everything we have. So their jobs are gonna change dramatically. So we designed a program, a year long program with the help of General Assembly, which maybe you guys know is a startup that was ultimately acquired by Adeco, a big Swiss, Swiss company. And it was 10 hours a week of quote unquote classroom time, I guess, which is online and 10 hours a week of self-study. So 20 hours a week for a year on top of their regular course load. And we had 20 actuaries in the uh, pilot to begin with. And one of the graduates actually went to work in our data analytics program with the PhDs in part because he was able to pick up those skills through this intensive program. And he really understood the products and the data. Now, not every actuary that went through the program became a data analyst, but they all were able to incorporate that mindset and those new skills into their day-to-day -day jobs. And some of them were able to take on much broader responsibility, broader management responsibility than they had in the past, certainly become more valuable to their business unit or area where they were employed because they had all these new skills. So that was a very successful application of how can we teach more people data analytics. Now, obviously actuaries are very good at statistics and math to begin with. It would have been much harder to take people with no math background and do that. But I think in most companies, if you look around, you can find people with the raw material to do what you need them to do. And you know, today there are plenty of resources online at your local community college um, with companies like General Assembly that can help you figure out how to take the raw material you have in your company and change it, transform it into what you actually need for the next set of jobs. And by the way, we're going to keep doing this. I mean, this is never done, right? This is, as Pranay said before, the pace of change in terms of the skills and knowledge needed is very fast. I have one comment and one question. Uh, so in our experience in you know, speaking with various uh, insurance leaders, uh, we've always heard that you know, uh, the actuarial department 
uh, is the uh, toughest in their opinion to you know make changes in one it is at the core of your business right and second it's a profession or it's a uh, yeah it, it's something that's been around for so long that you know uh, most companies they found it sort of hard to make changes over there so congratulations on you know what seems like you've done a you know phenomenal job in in, in making those changes and my question following from that is that as you embarked on this reskilling journey did you find that people were feeling like that this was striking at the heart of their identities in some ways and did you find that to be some kind of resistance coming from the fact that you're actually asking me to change my identity which is a really tough thing to do Renee, that's an excellent question i think you're right i mean one of the things that makes it hard for us to change as humans is we do tend to attach our identity to the work that we do and it feels like a very big risk to change work because you're actually changing your identity and you could fail right when you're doing something yeah. new so we had a lot of support from our hr department that wrapped around all of this and we had you know different themes that we ran campaigns on one of them was learning organization so we a couple of years ago had leader learning day where everybody on my team my direct reports fanned out across the country and we took all of our 900 people leaders offline and they spent a whole day going to classes in terms of learning how to learn teaching people how to learn promoting this idea of a learning organization it was so popular the next year we had learning month and we dropped the leader and we expanded it to everybody in the company and we had about 200 people i think who became trained to be career coaches and we installed them in most major locations and set up both online training courses and in person training courses this is pre pandemic where everybody in the company was eligible to go talk to a career coach take an online course about what are the skills i have where what direction is the company going how can i think about what i might want to do next so it was this whole idea of changing the mindset we also had a retreat for our top 250 people on this idea of growth mindset and we spent a whole day in a series of exercises thinking through the value of the growth mindset so there were a number of things we did those are just two of them um where we engaged everybody in the company on this idea that we're all going to have to change if we're going to be able to serve our clients the way we want to serve them and by the way our clients define that and the way they define that is how they're being served by other people how are they being served by google and amazon and facebook and those companies all know what they want in some cases i think before our clients do and so they're going to hold us to the same standard of we need to understand how to serve them uh in ways that the client might not have dreamed of we cannot do that without the right technology without ai without data analytics so we're all going to have to learn these skills you know you make an interesting point about the population of people finding a new identity and the growth mindset being what really allows you to grow and to prosper and and to be promoted uh within an organization as it changes so fast because it's really our, our only uh security blanket is that we're willing to learn uh and grow as quickly as you're both describing when you take that to the top of the organization and the succession plan and the people 
that need to be leading this charge, the missionaries, uh, the, the people who are evangelizing this, this set of principles of growth and change. What's your advice and how do you think about how to select people for the C-suite? And then how would you extend that to how you went about the process of thinking about your successor to replace you in, in your role? Because this has huge implications for what it used to mean to be a CEO or a C-suite executive and, and what you're defining the future to be. Yeah, I think you said it, Mark, it's not easy, right? Um, the C-suite is very different now than when I joined the company, you know, 12 years ago. And um, when I joined as not the CEO, but in the C-suite. And not everyone stayed with the journey, you know, some people dropped out and did other things along the way. So having this First of all, we always screened people for values, right? Do they believe in the values? There has to be a good values fit because that underpins everything. If you don't believe in serving the customer, taking care of the employee, taking care of the community, building a company that's going to last another 100 years, none of the other things are going to make sense to you. So starting with the values, but then moving on to having a growth mindset, very, very important to say, look, you can't you can't be doing what you did 10 years ago and, and still be in the C-suite here. And, you know, some of the people I mentioned earlier um, are people with growth mindsets. And we were very blessed that some of them, uh, such as um, our chief actuary, Mike Slipowitz, were in the company when I came and definitely had a growth mindset and does have a growth mindset about what actuaries can and should be doing. Dean Del Vecchio, we were lucky enough to recruit along the way and had a huge growth mindset, not only in terms of the changes that were going to happen in technology and how we had to stay ahead of them, but what kind of people could actually do the role of technologists. So Dean has hired people from high school, veterans, people from underserved communities who didn't have college degrees and put them through code academies and moved people inside of Guardian. We've even moved people from the call center to having jobs in IT through a program Dean designed called Code for Good. Now, not everybody in the call center who went into that program emerged a technologist, but enough of them did to convince us that that was something we could do in the pilot program. And you know, Dean has really reached out to veterans groups, to all kinds of people and said, have you ever thought about a career in technology? Come here, we'll help you have one, which has been terrific for the diversity that we so um, desperately wanted to have at Guardian. And also in just finding new sources of talent and in providing great examples for people inside the company. If someone can come from the military who didn't necessarily graduate from college and learn the skills to code and move up in the IT department. Well, people who are already there should be able to do it as well. So there's a lot of fresh energy inserted into the company by people in the C-suite who had a growth mindset. I think Michael Farrick, who runs the individual markets division is an actuary by training, but was hugely supportive of data analytics and of this idea that uh, actuaries had to be data analysts and actually recruited Tom Olds, who is, our, who is both an actuary and a data analyst who runs the data analytics department. So we were blessed to have very talented people, but we also worked hard to 
find them and attract them. And Andrew McMahon, who is my successor, has a patent on using data in the underwriting process, which I think he developed back in the early days, I don't know, 20, I wanna say 2013, 2014, before he became uh, Guardian's um, chief strategist and then president. I think he was maybe ahead of his time a little bit on the bleeding edge, but he had a company that he had started to better use data in insurance underwriting. Um, in addition to having a traditional insurance background and a computer science background, he also had a background as an entrepreneur, a private investor, had you know been an advisor to a couple of VC and private equity firms, which is not the traditional straight line up through the company uh, background, but in my thinking and the board's thinking, we needed someone like that to lead the company into the next generation. So uh, you can't do this with the same kind of development programs that you had even 10 years ago. All of the surround sound and the HR, and I'm sure Pranay would agree with this, mm -hmm. has to continue to change with the technology. Absolutely. I yeah. think about your... Uh... I think about your description of the players on the C-suite team and the way you characterize them, Deanna, as having uh, a number of great traits that I think we can all learn from around this capacity to have the growth mindset, this capacity to realize the growth mindset's there so that they can lead change in favor of the customer rather than rest on our laurels or, or just de-risk the business once having been successful. You're, you're suggesting that the, it's perhaps risky just to stay stationary. You have to continue to, to evolve for the board, uh, for the customer. When you think about you and your board evolving your role from being a member of the C-suite to becoming CEO, could you tell us a little bit about how that process unfolded and, and what you were feeling and thinking uh, about that transition for you? You now had to be the executive folks wanted to work for instead of with. And uh, could you un unpack that process for us? Well, I came into the company as a consultant and then ultimately took the job as executive vice president in charge of our life and disability businesses, two big businesses in the company. And the people who worked in those businesses knew me as a consultant. So I think this idea of being helpful and friendly and approachable went all the way back to there, which was part of, you know, the values I had in my consulting practice. And that sort of carried over into my role as EVP. I had to make a lot of changes, but I tried to make them as gracefully as possible. And sometimes it takes a little extra time or a little extra money or a little extra care to execute a change. I mean, you could do it the fast and inexpensive and quote unquote, easy way, or you could do it the harder, slightly longer in time, more expensive way. But I think the second way yields more advantages in the long term, because you're right, people did have to trust that I could lead the company to a new place, but do it in a way that was consistent with historical guardian values. And of course, I had to bring the board along in that regard. And I spent a lot of time with my board and I was fortunate to have a great board and I listened to them and I sought advice from them a lot. I mean, I did not have all the answers, 
but I had a lot of smart people on the board and I would go to different board members and ask them questions about how did you do this in your company? How did you do this in your career? How do you think we can do this and keep our values intact? Um, the relationship was not, let's go to a board meeting and have everything polished and perfect. It was, I'm gonna ask a lot of questions and ultimately empower my C-suite team to ask questions of board members and get their points of view and their help. Um, it's a, you know, it takes a village. No CEO can do this by himself or herself. I see Pranay sh uh, shaking his head, nodding his head there. He agrees with that, I think. No, absolutely, absolutely. I think you need to, you need to get help from as many places as you can. I mean, of course, the, the, I mean, I mean, the, the, the job does entail that essentially you can get all the advice that you want in the world, but you still have to make the decision and it's your decision, right? Regardless of, of who gave you what advice. <laughs> but I think there's no question that uh, we need to get advice from multiple people and uh, it is helpful. Even if you don't agree with the advice, it helps us look at it from a, uh, an angle that we hadn't seen before. It also gives your board the perspective of how you think, yeah. right? Which is useful to them and yeah. builds confidence and on their part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, at the end of the previous question, I wanted to uh, come in with a short story. Uh, you spoke about a couple of things. You spoke about the idea of a growth mindset. You spoke also about the idea that uh, people within the company can do more than you think that they can, right? And I think added to that is the third idea that leaders need to be willing to uh, make some bets on people that they have seen, that people who, uh, who endorse the values of the company and who have a growth mindset. So this was about 14, 15 years back. Uh, there was a person in our finance department, uh, essentially a person that was an accountant by training, a smart young person uh, doing very well in the accounting group. And uh, one day he came and said that I want to leave. And he said, what happened? Why do you want to leave? He said, look, you know, accounting and all of that's fine. Uh, but I'm in this analytics company and I really like, you know, the work that the company does for the clients and uh, I'd like to do analytics. Uh, I have no background in this. I'm, I don't know programming. I don't, and I'm not, I don't have a mathematics degree and all of that, but I still like to give my, uh, give a shot at this. So I, I think I'm going to go out and maybe uh, educate myself and then, you know, find a job in this space or something like that. So we said, listen, you know, we think you're smart. We like you. Uh, you're willing to work hard. Uh, why don't you stay on in Fractal? Uh, we will give you the requisite training, you know, go through the training that, you know, our campus hires and all of them go through and uh, start working on client projects, right? And he did that and did very well. Um, and then he did that for a couple of years and then he got a really good job in UK. He was in Mumbai, he got a really good job in UK. We didn't have a presence at that point of time in UK. He said, okay, great, you know, glad that, you know, uh, you were able to do this for yourself, all the best and, and good luck to you. And then about five years back, um, we heard back from him one day, he called and said, you know, Pranay, I'm working at this, you know, large company in UK and, uh, you know, they're looking to get, you know, bring on board an analytics partner. I've seen the other partners. I do think Fractal can add a lot of value over here brought us in, we met the senior leadership of that company and soon they were one of our top five clients, right? So, I mean, I think life can lead you in many different ways. And I think you've got to recognize people that have 
the growth mindset and the people who are willing to take that challenge and sort of you know back them up in some ways and it it, it was a very inspiring story for us yeah I love that story, Pranay. And people often ask me, well, what happens if you train all these people? It's exactly to your point. You train all these people and they leave. And I said, what happens if you don't train them and they stay? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I think, of course, it's, it's a journey, right? And I, uh, uh, people will leave. Uh, but you're right. I think so long as they're in the company, I think we have to make sure that they're skilled and they're doing the best. And of course, they'll be ambassadors for the company if we help them grow, even if they leave the company. Yeah. May I ask you both a question related to this idea of the investment that you're making in the people and then the selection process that we must go through the way who's really right for the next role as CEO uh, and think through together how you bring those people in front of the board or the people who will be making the decision. One of the challenges I see frequently is that you've now invested in these people and the people who will vote on who gets the job aren't aware of the skills and capacities. Do you, could you both talk, Deanna, maybe start with you, talk about how you showcase, in a sense, the, the skills and the collaboration of the team at uh, both the employee meetings as well as perhaps for the, the board, if, if in fact you did that? Well, I, I think you kind of answered your own question, Mark, in that, yes, it's really critical that you bring all these people, all the names I just mentioned, are regular attendees at board mm. meetings, right? They have to be because the board needs to understand, uh, are we making the transformation journey or not? And in my case, especially early on in my tenure, there were people on the board who were very concerned about our IT development and whether we were keeping up with the latest in data analytics and so on. So showcasing these people at board meetings was important, but we also have a strategic offsite every year where board members and management team members spend a couple of days together. And we made sure there were plenty of opportunities for informal interaction between board members and some of these more junior folks who, so that they could really get to know them themselves. And we also had a tradition of inviting anybody who presented at the board meeting to the board cocktail hour and sometimes the board dinner so that they could you know, roam around literally and eat a few hors d'oeuvres and talk to board members and board members could ask them any questions they wanted to. So the CEO definitely has to let those people loose with board members and have the board feel comfortable that they know the next generation. And then, you know, the CEO succession, of course, there's a process that has to be followed and good governance has to be followed, but the board already feels as though they have knowledge of these people. Mm. And how did that feel for you as you think about the process of having made the investment in the team You've identified the people with the new competencies and, and who could lead change. And talk a little bit about how you decided to make your transition, because then we need to make room for those new people to step forward. Uh, and that means the person that we've invested in you uh, for the last 10 years is, is someone who's making room for them. Could you talk a little bit about that crisis uh, or a transition or, or how that felt um, and what you did about it? Well, it certainly wasn't a crisis. It, it actually felt good. I mean, I was 47 when they named me as president 
And I was pretty sure I was not going to be the CEO until I was 65, right? Nobody today stays CEO for 18 years. However, I wanted our previous CEOs, all of our previous CEOs at Guardian had retired at 65. So the first thing I needed to do was make it clear to the talented people on the team and the people we would hire that I was not going to stay until I was 65, that I had other things to do and that I, you know, they had every opportunity that, you know, to become CEO or to move into the C-suite because I was going to be out of their way long before they would, you know, age out of the opportunity. That was really important to me. And I think someone who becomes CEO young has to make that clear. That was the first Mm -hmm. thing. Uh, The second thing was I just have always considered it part of my job. It is part of the CEO's job and the board's job to make sure they have the right successor. I mean, you cannot be count yourself as a success as a CEO if you don't hand off the company to the right person in a time frame that works for that person, the board, and everybody else. If you hang on too long, it doesn't matter what kind of a job you did. You know, you're you're not going to be seen as leaving the kind of legacy that you might want to. So I think from the very beginning, you have to accept that part of success in this job means that you you work yourself out of a job by hiring enough talented people to replace you. And you have to let go and have the confidence that there are other things in life you can do. It's not just this one thing and that your success will ultimately be judged by how successful is the person who replaces you. And so I kind of went into it with all those things. Now, Andrew McMahon, my successor, was absolutely a delight to work with and never, you know, made it feel like I was hanging around and he couldn't wait for me to leave. We worked as a team and he was really tremendous and came in with that set of values that we're going to work together, you know, as a team. When you started that process, was it a multi-year process? Was it a six-month process? How much transparency was in the, they were internal candidates as well as external? I think that if you're doing this correctly, you start thinking from the day you take the job who could potentially succeed you because one never knows. I mean, we just had, we've had news even in the past year of CEOs, unfortunately, you know, becoming sick or dying in office or all kinds of things could happen. So there always has to be that if I get hit by a bus, who's going to replace me? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Pranay, how do you feel about that and what you've seen of both at Fractal and also the community of big companies that you're interacting with? I bet you see changes like the one that Deanna's describing uh, underway all the time. No, absolutely. I think first of all, from the standpoint of the community of our clients, I think uh, change is constant. And I think it's very purposeful. We see that the best run companies have a very purposeful uh, uh, program uh, where they're making leadership changes, whether that is, you know, new roles for people within the company. And then, of course, at senior levels, we keep seeing those changes happening. Um, and and that, that's right, as you said, I mean, people need to sort of, you know, create the spot for the next person. And sometimes it's just about bringing in new people with a, a new way of looking at things and, you know, new ways of doing things. Um, Fractal is uh, different uh, from, you know, uh, the large corporations. I mean, Srikanth and I are co-founders. We've been running this company from our inception. And uh, I'm sure that, you know, uh, there will be a time in the 
near future because i mean we are thinking of this that how do we set up a company that will last the test of time that will be there for the next 100 years and can always be there to create value for clients right uh, and so of course i mean i don't think either of us can be running this company for the next uh, you know 25 30 years and think that you know that's all that'll happen uh, so i think there is clearly a need to start thinking about that uh, aspect and we do spend you know some time thinking about it but uh, honestly i it, it's nowhere close to the kind of you know rigor with which you know uh, the large companies are doing it uh, the part about you know uh, exposure to the board i think that is a critical one and uh, we do make sure that in our board meetings there uh, you know senior most people are exposed to the board uh, either by being present in those you know board meetings sometimes presenting their areas and then again these informal conversations right at the end of the board meeting of course in the last one year there's been no physical but you know usually there is a physical uh, meeting once a quarter then you know you bring the team in and then they meet uh, at the after the board meeting there's a dinner or whatever and people get to meet each other um and it has you know um, multiple uh, purposes right i mean it gives them an idea of you know what's the kind of talent uh, we are bringing into the company and it gives them uh, confidence around our decisions right sometimes you say okay i need to do this person can do more uh maybe sometimes there is you know you just had a bad quarter or bad year and you said no you know the person you know that the person is fundamentally good and you know we they need to continue to do this job it is just you know uh whatever may have been the reason and and so on so i think the board having a view uh, visibility into the you know uh, ceo's uh, immediate uh, you know uh, direct reports i think that's important i i completely agree with that when um, the two of you have joined a number of other CEOs for a process that Marshall Goldsmith and I host, uh, which is a life process review, we, we started that process because we were hearing from so many of you who have led organizations. And I've, I've been a four-time CEO myself, and I found it profoundly lonely uh, at many points in the trajectory, either with uh, the opportunities I had to learn from the board or the uh, other members of the team. Um, could you could you just share for a moment each of you about uh, how important it is to have support or or maybe even the role the LPR might have in in thinking through with your peers uh, and in a safe place uh, having a conversation about what's next? I've always had a coach, sometimes multiple coaches on different functions. I think it's very important for the CEO to have someone to talk to who isn't invested in the outcome of the business, but is just more a friendly shoulder that's trusted and confidential. And as you said, CEOs can't talk to just anybody. So um, I think it's important to have some professional support there. And I was never shy about doing that and about being open with my board that I had, you know, coaches and I thought that coaching was important for the members of the C-suite as well. So I think that's very important. I think the peer groups like your and Marshall Goldsmith's LPR 50 group is, is important. It's important to have people who understand what you're going through. And again, one can't exactly go and talk to one's competitor CEOs about you know the issues I may have. So a safe space, I think, is really important. And I think it's important to, as the LPR 50 does, the life performance reviewer, life process. I'm not exactly sure what LPR stands for, but I think it's really important to keep reviewing your, your life outside of work and to have a life outside of work because all these things that we're saying about letting go when it's time to let go, 
it's really hard to do that if you've neglected your life outside of work and you don't have anything waiting for you at the end. I don't know. Frenet is uh, a vocal member of that esteemed group as well. I'm sure he has thoughts on that. So look, I think um, my coaching journey, uh, you know, started with uh, Mark and Marshall only about a year back and I can feel uh, the profound benefit that I've experienced, uh, this whole idea of safe space. Uh, how do you make, you know, decisions sometimes? I mean, like I said, ultimately the decision is you have to carry it. In fact, we released an ad recently in The Economist um, about, uh, and, and the, the, the ad had the face of a person who was uh, the head of the, you know, think of them as the city's mayor or the city's health council. And it said, mistake holder, okay? <laughs> And, and really the idea was that, you know, good or bad, whatever, you have to make the decision at that point of time. If it turns out good, it's good. But if it doesn't, the mistake is still yours, right? And we were just saying that how we were supporting them with, you know, AI and analytics. But that, that is the reality of it, that at the end of it, you still own that decision and that outcome. Uh, so you know that, but I think getting any kind of help or advice on that um, is, is, is very, very, uh, very helpful. Uh, uh, we have also been fortunate that, you know, on our board, our initial investor himself has been a first generation entrepreneur, and he had a long journey, uh, starting with, you know, very humble beginnings to creating a uh, electronics uh, major in India. And uh, to that extent, I think that was very helpful, uh, you know, speaking with him, uh, you know, uh, periodically, because he spoke about all of the things, you know, the, the loneliness at the top and, you know, how you need to make your decisions and, you know, you got to be responsible for them one way or the other. Uh, so I think we've been fortunate to have a, you know, supportive board and very fortunate to be working with you, Mark, and uh, also with Marshall and the LPR group. It's been phenomenal. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Uh, as you've been so generous here and I, I want to wrap up, I would love to ask you this, this final question about Deanna what do you wish you knew when you started out as CEO that was profoundly different from the roles that you had earlier that, that you know today? Uh, is, would there be a, a couple of items that you'd give to be accelerated tips for those listening today? And uh, how would you think about that for people? Well, the list is long. Um, a couple of things. Uh, if you think someone on the team isn't working out, they probably aren't. You know, mm -hmm. don't wait to make changes because someone who's not working can do a lot of damage and you'll, you'll know it. You need to consult with the board, but trust your instincts. And by the way, that person is always relieved when they move on to another job that's better for them. Um, and the team is really important. It, it really, the executive team is the beating heart of the company and you have to, if you get it wrong and every once in a while you will, you've got to keep working on it until you get it right. And nobody gets it right hundred percent for 10 years. At least I, you know, that would be amazingly hard to do. So don't beat yourself up, get support again from your board, your HR department, do what you need to do. I would say that the time goes by much, much more quickly than one could ever anticipate. So you know, on day one, um, when the board is asking you, well, now you have to start thinking about a successor. You say, hey, what is this? <laughs> you know, they're absolutely, <laughs> they're absolutely right because the time flies and it takes 
a long time to put to do succession well. I think three years, starting three years before the outdate is is about the right time. And then emergency succession planning is always with us, right? So it's always a topic of conversation, as we said before. Mm-hmm. That's well, you've inspired many, and and uh, it's it sounds like the the trajectory of the company is well set because you were willing to have the the sense of humility and the, the collaboration to, to build a great business and a, a great team. How about you, Pranay? What, what do you wish you knew when you started this journey? I think the number one thing is that uh, the job is not just to make the company successful. In our case, you know, we speak of the company, we speak of our, our value of, you know, put the client first and make the client successful. I think a really important part of the job is to make your people successful. Right. So you have to really invest in making the people successful because that is the only way to be successful. I think that's number one. I think number two is that uh, you need to have some mechanism uh, to almost like a talent scorecard. Right. Have you been constantly uh, improving the talent score of the company, whether that is, you know, uh, upskilling the existing people? or you're bringing in new people, but every three months, six months, or at least on an annual basis, your talent scorecard has to go up. Just as your revenue needs to go up, the talent scorecard needs to go up. And I think on the third point, which uh, third point mine is exactly the same as Deanna's, which is that uh, you've got to back your instinct around this. And if you think that someone's not working, then they're not working. You can be more or less sure that that's the case. And uh, if you're seeing it, the rest of your team has seen it much before you. I've been a long believer in uh, not so much A and B players, but A or B alignment. And I think that's the relief that you're talking about that happens when you finally come uh, to the epiphany that apparently the rest of the organization already has about whether this person is aligned with your values and their role and are being fed by it. Uh, I don't. I can't remember a time ever when a CEO has told me that she took the action too soon, <laughs> or right. right? It's 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 something that ends up becoming self-evident. I think it's about finding that, making everybody successful, and that's what you did with your story, Pranay, about investing in people in ways that, whether they're here or elsewhere, that's the equity that they take with them, uh, and that they pay forward in the communities, which is, I think, the the point of, of the exercise of of being a a company and a, and a community builder. Thank you so much, Deanna. Thank you, Pranay. I'm so grateful to you uh, for sharing this today. And um, we will be reaching out to you again. Uh, no good deed goes unpunished. Uh, we, we, we appreciate the, the sentiments and, and the direction. And, and congratulations on your book, Higher Purpose. Uh, we're going to provide a link there so that you can get the best book of the year. And uh, she, she's the one who took the extra effort and, and uh, really has, I think, provided a nice framework for the rest of us. So thank you so much. And I just want Appreciate to say it's it. been an honor, Deanna. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Chief Executive Podcast. I'm Mark Thompson. And please don't forget to like and subscribe for more episodes every week.